0: Candy from Strangers by Mark Coggins is Original, Smart, and Good to the Last Page Says best-selling author and executive producer of the hit TV series Bosch Michael Connolly Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 16 One Hour Martinizing. More unpleasant surprises were waiting for me when I got home. I was standing in the lobby of my building, sorting through my mail a discount coupon for Bikini Waxing, a CD with software for 50,000 hours of free internet time, and an offer for a titanium credit card when the elevator clanged to a stop on the ground floor. I glanced up from the picture on the Bikini Waxing coupon just as the doors lurched open to reveal my old pals from the ashram, Tom and Jerry. They had exchanged their robes for more conventional garb, but their bald heads and their identical denim shirts gave them the same match-set look they had in Oakland. I was slower off the mark than they were. Jerry charged out of the elevator and pushed me aside, while Tom rushed the door. Jerry followed on his heels, and by the time I made it out to the sidewalk in front of my building, they were sprinting down post towards Leavenworth. I started after them, but after a few jolting strides, I decided my hangover and I had had more than enough adventures for one day. I trudged back to the building and rode the elevator to my apartment on the fourth floor, knowing exactly what I would find. The door was standing wide open. The living room wasn't too badly tossed because there weren't that many obvious places to hide things. Some of the records in my jazz collection had been pulled off the shelves, and the card table had been overturned and all the cushions on the sofa had been thrown on the floor. I was thankful they hadn't mucked with my turntable or any of the delicate electronics in my stereo system, and my 60-pound Altec Lansing voice-of-the-the-theater speakers were large and heavy enough to take care of themselves. The kitchen looked bad, but it always looked bad. All the drawers were pulled out, and all the cabinets were yawning open with my meager collection of pots and pans strewn all over the landscape. The good news was I didn't have to worry about broken plates because I'd long ago switched to paper. The refrigerator door was also left open, and there was a smashed bottle of mustard on the floor in front of it. That depleted the inventory inside by one-third, leaving only the ketchup and a container of tartar sauce whose best-if-used-by date was probably celebrated as Independence Day by certain former Soviet republics. There was nothing in the bathroom that couldn't be cleaned with a fire hose and a 100 pounds of water pressure. The bedroom was another story. The bed was completely destroyed. The mattress separated from the box spring. The sheets torn off and the pillows eviscerated. The closet looked like it had been host to an indoor rugby match, and the dresser drawers and their contents were dispersed across the room in a manner calculated to demonstrate the effects of maximum entropy. The only thing that wasn't upended or trashed was the magazine rack by the door. It was perfectly fine. So I aimed a vicious kick at it that sent it gyrating across the room like a disabled satellite. I had no doubt that Tom and Jerry had been sent to the apartment by the guru to search for something. The only question was what. They didn't have anything in their hands as they exited the building, so either it was something small or they had failed to locate it. I was tired and my head hurt. I decided to get the bedroom into a semblance of order and let the other room slide until the next day. I had just shoved the mattress on top of the box spring when I heard a hesitant tapping at the apartment door. It was followed by a weak, Anyone home? No, I shouted. The Tupperware party just broke up. August? Is that you? I threw a wad of bedsheets to one side and strode into the living room. Ellen Stockwell stood in a doorway, holding a hanger with a suit coat wrapped in plastic. My suit coat. She gawked at the overturned card table, the spilled sofa cushions, and the jumbled LPs. What happened? Everyone wanted a cereal store, and I only had one. There was a riot. Please. Don't joke with me. I took the card table by one of its legs and flipped it upright. A couple of guys from your daughter's ashram broke in and tossed the place. Her eyes flashed at the mention of her daughter, and then she pressed a knuckle into her lower lip and nodded vaguely. She walked zombie-like over to the couch and flopped down into the cavity where the cushions went. She laid the suit coat on the arm of the sofa, but it slipped to the floor. Carolyn tried to kill herself, she said. I couldn't summon any feeling of surprise. The story Ellen had told me that morning was too pat and simple for the truth. I didn't know what had happened to Carolyn while she was gone, but there was no doubt in my mind that it was tied to the suicide attempt. Thinking these thoughts took too much time. Ellen glared up at me and stamped her foot. Don't you dare say I told you so. I wasn't going to. Is she okay? She's all right now, but she lost a lot of blood, I found her in the bathroom just after I got off the phone with you. Quentin has an old straight razor he inherited from his grandfather. She used that to cut her wrist. I would never have found her if her blood hadn't seeped under the bathroom door into the hallway carpet. As it was, I barely had time to jimmy open the door, bandage her wrist, and get her to the hospital. They told me she was very lucky. She was wearing this crazy unitard thing and it actually slowed the flow of blood from the wound because it was so tight around the arms. In another minute or two, she would have been gone. I didn't say anything for a moment. You were very brave, Ellen. Few people would have had the presence of mind to do all that. She ran a trembling hand through her hair. Do you think so? I was on the edge of hysteria the whole time. Her hand closed around a bunch of hair at the nape of her neck, and she pulled at it savagely. I need a drink or heroin or something. I've got alcohol, but it's not exactly wine coolers. I don't care what it is. I just want to lay waste to all conscious thought. I nodded and walked over to the sofa to shake her hand loose from the death grip on her hair. Relax. I'll be back in a minute. I found the Maker's Mark bottle intact under a pile of canned food that had been pulled from the pantry cabinets. My collection of jelly glasses was unmolested. So I poured three fingers worth into a glass featuring Archie and another into a glass with Veronica and carried them in the bottle out to the living room. Here you go, I said, handing her the Veronica glass. Kentucky's finest. She downed about half of the bourbon in one go, then held up the glass to examine the picture. Wasn't she the spoiled rich one? I sat down next to her on the cushionless sofa, placing the bottle on the floor in front of us. That's right. I think Betty was Archie's main squeeze, but I always had a thing for Veronica. She smiled into the glass as she took another sip. And they say women always go for the bad boy. I shrugged. Only in comic books. I've had my fill of bad girls in real life. Why is it we always end up talking about silly things like fruit salad and comic books? We're mental midgets? We're flirting? Or we're trying to avoid the painful topics? I wish it were the second, but I'm afraid it's the third. I nodded and took a sip of the bourbon. Did Carolyn write a note or say anything to indicate why she might want to kill herself? Ellen braced her forearms on her knees, cradling the glass with two hands as she stared down into it. She didn't write a note. Afterwards, I mean after I got her to the hospital, she was resting and I didn't want to disturb her. In any case, she's in the ICU and they only let you visit for a few minutes at a time. And there wasn't anything more to her story about where she went than what you told me this morning? No, that was it. She drove across the country with a friend. A male friend? Yes, someone she met at school. I assumed he was the new boyfriend she had been hinting about. I slumped back into the sofa and studied her profile. She felt my eyes on her and turned to look at me. You've got that I told you so, look again, she said. I realize now I should never have taken what she told me at face value, but I was just so happy to have her home that I didn't want to question things. Besides, I thought I would have more time to tease the story out of her. She didn't come home until around 2 that morning. We talked for about 20 minutes, and then she said she was tired and could she go to bed. The next time I saw her, she was on the bathroom floor. Do you think she really went to bed, or did she wait for you to go to your room and then sneak into the bathroom to, to do it? She was wearing the same clothes she had on when she arrived, but I don't think she went straight to the bathroom after I went to bed. If she had done it that early, I think she would have bled to death by the time I found her. Why? Is it important? I don't know. Where was Quentin for all this? She frowned. There's something else I should mention, but to answer your question, Quentin had his usual quart of tequila for dinner and passed out about 8 p.m., he made a brief appearance when Carolyn came home, but he was still drunk, and I don't think he quite registered what was going on. And he was completely useless this morning during the crisis. He just sat in the hallway floor by the bathroom and blubbered the whole time. The only thing he did was help me carry her to the car. He's at the hospital now, taking his turn at watching her. And I've never seen a sorrier, paler creature than the one who's sitting with his head in his hands in that waiting room. I felt my face go flush, somehow embarrassed for Stockwell at the bitter description she gave. I see. And what was the other thing you wanted to tell me? She gunned the last quarter inch of her drink and held out the glass for more. Hit me again, bartender. I pushed my glass over and took the empty one from her hand. She swallowed most of the contents before she spoke. When I got back from the first trip to the hospital, Quentin told me that someone had tried to break into our house. When? Sometime last night, I guess. How did he know? Quentin's always been security conscious. He won't install an alarm. He says they don't prevent break-ins, and he doesn't trust the Union City Police to respond in a timely manner anyway. But he has put in the best locks and other security devices he can find. That includes wrought iron bars on all the windows. I noticed. She smiled faintly. They do make the house look like some kind of western jail, don't they? Anyway, he said someone had tried to come in through one of the back windows, but they couldn't get past the bars. He said they tried to pry them out of the wall. Which window? The one to Carolyn's bedroom. Was he certain that nobody got in? That whoever it was wasn't responsible for hurting Carolyn? Ellen sat still and quiet for a long moment. I never thought of that, but Quentin said nobody got in. They barely loosened one of the bolts in the bars. I looked down at the floor and nudged the bourbon bottle with the toe of my shoe. Might have been the same guys who redecorated my apartment. That's what struck me when you explained what happened. You said they were from the ashram. What's the point of breaking into either of our places? When I went to check out the ashram, I was thinking that Carolyn might be staying there. I'm pretty convinced now that she wasn't. But I do think that the guru had some interest in her, probably through her website. It's got to be connected to that. Could he be responsible for her going missing? Possibly. But as I said, I didn't really get the sense he had seen her in some time. Ellen nodded vaguely and swirled the remaining bourbon in her glass. She brought the glass to her lips in an almost guilty fashion and drained it quickly. Hit me again? She said with a false insouciance. I shook my head and pulled the archie glass from her hand. No. Aren't you being the tiniest bit hypocritical? You bet I am. But as the guru says, a man with butter on his head should not walk in the sun. Which is to say, I've drowned my sorrows on plenty of occasions, as recently as last night even, and I'm the last person to pass judgment. But I'm not going to sit here and watch you do it. Not here, and not now. She looked at me levelly. Why ever not? You might get lucky. I wouldn't want that kind of luck, Ellen. She turned her head to one side. I have to ask you something I've no right to ask. I knew what was coming, but I'm as human as the next guy. I wasn't going to make it any easier for her. What is it? I want you to find where Carolyn went. I mean, where she really went. Not the crazy story she told me about driving across a country. I've got to believe that whatever happened to her while she was gone is what drove her to try to kill herself. If I know more about it, maybe I can help her cope with it or prevent it from coming back for her. Or I don't know what. It may be a complete waste of time, but I feel I've got to make some sort of effort to find out. Why not just ask her? She brought her lips together in a tight line. Because I don't believe she'll tell me. Six months ago I might have fooled myself into thinking that she would. But now I know different. She doesn't trust me any longer. And she certainly doesn't trust Quentin. She's been living her whole life apart from us. I was still holding the glasses in my hands. I stacked Veronica on top of Archie and set them down on the floor next to the maker's mark. All right, Ellen, I'll keep at it. But at some point I'll need to talk to her, even if you don't want to. And I think you need to be clear on one thing. If I find out what happened to her, just knowing what it is may make no difference at all. There may be nothing you can do to make things better. I've lived long enough to know that airing out the wound doesn't always make it heal faster. I understand. She broke across a space separating us and put her arms around me. She put her lips to mine and kissed me with a surprising urgency. I felt her grip on my sides, her nails almost galvanic against my ribs. This isn't the bourbon talking, she said. I didn't need a second invitation. I picked her up from the sofa and carried her to the demolished bedroom where we made a desperate, precarious kind of love, like refugees in a war zone. You have been listening to Candy from Strangers, a book Mystery Scene magazine described as crackling and whip smart. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com.